Now, have you ever looked out on the world or maybe even looked out on your own life and asked yourself, why doesn't God intervene? Maybe you've asked that of the Lord. Lord, why don't you intervene? Why haven't you acted to make this situation better? Why have you left me feeling like this in my own life? Maybe you've thought, well, why are the ungodly so successful? How come people who don't trust in the God we believe in seem to have quite content and prosperous existences? Maybe you've prayed, Lord, please revive the church. I mean, if if we're supposed to be the people gathered together in the name of the God who rules everything, why isn't the room full? Why isn't even half full? Lord, please, why aren't you reviving your church? I mean, Christians seem to only make it onto the national news for historic sex abuse or because the Reverend Richard Coles, and it was a great song, Don't Leave Me This Way, has now been announced as the next contestant in Strictly Come Dancing. That's the only way we make it on the news these days. People who claim Jesus as Lord and Savior and actually take him seriously, they're regarded as freaks in the workplace. Fewer and fewer people are going to church, and can you blame them? Because in the end, the church doesn't really preach publicly a different morality to the world. The morality of the church and the world seems to be, if it doesn't hurt other people, it's okay for you to do it. And sadly, increasingly, in the public arena, the church doesn't seem to have a different message from the world about what you believe. Believe what you want, as long as it's good for you. I think Habakkuk would have had some sympathy with our situation in the United Kingdom in 2017. We've seen over the past three weeks that Habakkuk is a prophet with a problem. He's living amongst God's people, Judah, in around about 600 BC. And the problem is this. They are a half-hearted people. They're nominal. Oh, yeah, we follow the Lord. But actually, they are full of injustice and more concerned with their own comfort than the glory of God. And what we have in Habakkuk is really a unique thing in the Old Testament. Rather than a a declaration by the prophet of God's word to the people, we have a discussion between the prophet and the Lord himself. Habakkuk asks questions of God, and God answers him. So we saw in chapter 1, Habakkuk cried out, How long, O Lord, until you sort out your people, this rum lot? When are you going to do something about them? And that presented us with the first challenge, really, from the prophet. And it was this, that Habakkuk was more concerned about God's honor than he was about his own comfort, or Brexit, or the state of the economy, or his job, or his own safety. That's why Habakkuk cried out, how long, O Lord, God's honor amongst his people. But but God's answer, we saw, provided Habakkuk actually with a greater problem, a a larger headache, because God said this, Don't worry, Habakkuk, I've got it in hand. I'm going to send the thoroughly evil Babylonians to smash my people to smithereens. Things aren't going to get any better. They're going to get worse, first of all. And that taught us that actually the Lord was willing to discipline his people. That God's primary concern for us is that he conforms us to the likeness of Christ, and he will use any means to do that, even suffering evil. (laughs) Habakkuk cries, well, how is that fair? I mean, I know we're really rubbish in the church, but the world, the Babylonians, they're totally off the scale. How come they can get away with it? Will they get away with this forever, Lord? And the Lord says, no. We saw last week there will be a day of final justice, a day when all evil is punished, every wrong is righted. Now, trust me, Habakkuk, 
and wait. Trust me and wait. That, that was the last thing that we saw. That actually, life today has to be lived in the light of the day when every man, woman, and child who has ever lived will be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ. And only by living by faith in Christ today will we avoid that judgment to come because faith in Christ brings us a righteousness from God, a right relationship with Him that is a gift of God that not only saves us on the day of judgment but helps us to cope in a world where we experience unrighteousness day in, day out. And chapter 3 brings us to Habakkuk's response to what God has been saying. It's a response of faith. It's to pray. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. But but it's not just a a private prayer, because you see, it's on the Shigionoth. And if you look at the end, it's for the director of music on my stringed instruments. Now, out of Habakkuk's suffering and questions comes a public song of faith, a song of the people. So what we have here is a model of how to relate to the Lord when the world around you is under his judgment and the church is a mess. Does that sound familiar? Well, this is how we relate to the Lord in that situation. And the first thing we see is this. Habakkuk's prayer, in wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. Look at verse 2 with me. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. That's the heart of Habakkuk's prayer. In wrath, remember mercy. He's experiencing the Babylonian invasion. Around him, Jerusalem is being destroyed. And he acknowledges this is God's righteous anger. It's not some accident this is happening. This is God's promised judgment. So he cries to the Lord, the covenant God, the God who has made promises to his people. Now, now do you notice, Habakkuk doesn't say, in wrath, Lord, remember that I've actually been quite faithful. No, in wrath, Lord, remember that they might be rubbish, but I was at the temple reasonably regularly. Now, Habakkuk recognizes here that he deserves God's wrath as much as the next person. So he cries out to the God who is merciful. See, if God, the people of God, are not going to be wiped from the face of the earth, then that's only going to happen because of God's character, not because of their performance. Now, as we look at the world around us, we've got to remember the Bible teaches us that we live in a world actively today already under the wrath of God. Romans 1.18 says this, It tells us the wrath of God is actively present now, is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. So that means we should pick up our newspaper, if you're a dinosaur like me, or go to your website, if you're a normal human being on your phone. You should have that, the news, in one hand, and your Bible in the other hand. And as you look at the two, you should see, I live in a world which is showing me God is angry with humanity today. But remember, Habakkuk is writing about the people of God, the equivalent of of the church today. And things don't look too good there. So when we look at the church, when we look at the people who claim to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in our culture, well, it's not a lot to be impressed by, is there? 
actually we must also ask is the church under the judgment of God today? Because in the Bible, the problems of the church are never the fault of the world. Do you hear that? The problems of the church are never the fault of the world. See, our temptation, I think, is to be self-righteous. Oh, isn't the world out there terrible? I mean, thank goodness we're not like that. I mean, the sexuality of the world's gone crazy. They're all money-grabbing. But fortunately, we're not like that because we're nice. And I know Daffy used to work in the Church of England, and they are rubbish. But here at CEC, we believe in the Bible. This is Chessington Evangelical Church. We've only just stopped wearing a suit on a Sunday. Of course we're kosher. Why isn't the building full? The problems of the church are never the fault of the world. And therefore, we should cry, God, have mercy on our nation. Don't let us descend further into evil, into ignoring you, so that morality increasingly becomes whatever you feel good for you, you do it. And God, have mercy on our church. Please don't take your word from us because we take your word so lightly. Please don't. Let us descend into a people who are just concerned about our daily comfort and not about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because like Habakkuk, we've got to remember, in ourselves, we deserve God's wrath, his righteous anger as much as anyone. There is nothing about you, there is nothing about me, in ourselves, that means we stand right before God other than the Lord Jesus Christ. See, if we're slow to see people coming to Christ, if we're slow to see people take Jesus seriously, we actually shouldn't condemn them. We should examine first and foremost our own hearts and say, Lord, please change us. But please, in your mercy, show us once again our sin and show us once again the beauty of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Give us such a clarity about the gospel that we live our lives in a renewed way for him. We're coming to the end of Habakkuk tonight, and I think one of the reasons I've found Habakkuk so hard to apply is actually the emotions Habakkuk feels are so far removed from mine. You see, we start Habakkuk, we think, how long, O Lord? Oh, I know what that is. It's a cry for comfort. Oh, how long, O Lord, do I have to live in a world where I get an ingrowing toenail gout and I'm going to die in the end? It's all about me. But that's not what Habakkuk's crying in Habakkuk 1. It's how long, O Lord, will your name be dishonored amongst your people? See, Habakkuk's primary emotional desire is for the glory of God, the honor of his name. I don't cry like this because my primary emotional desire is for the happiness of Daph, the comfort of Daph, and the glory of my name. See, the honor of the Lord Jesus and the salvation of the lost are so far removed from my emotions to where they should be if the gospel is true. If, if, if I really believe the gospel, my daily prayer, looking out upon our world, would be in, roared, in wrath. Remember mercy. And do you see what Habakkuk bases his cry on? Lord, I have heard of your fame. You see, he bases his cry on what he's heard 
about what God has done in the past. And that takes us to the second thing we see. He prays in wrath, remember mercy. But here's the second thing. It's Habakkuk's confidence. Why does he pray like this? His confidence is that the Lord is the mighty deliverer. The Lord is the mighty deliverer. You see, God has shown mercy in wrath in the past. And in verses 3 to 15, Habakkuk speaks in poetic language about the mighty deeds of the Lord in really rescuing his people from Egypt in the Exodus. Now, sometimes it's easy for us as Christians to think, well, if God did some mighty stuff now, or or if it wasn't so long ago since God acted in power and and miraculous ways, then it would be easier for us to believe. But do you know Habakkuk's writing something like 700 years after the Exodus. That's how far he's looking back as he recognizes Lord is the mighty deliverer. And the language of plagues and pestilences that God brought upon the Egyptians, the language thunders of the the awesome nature of God. Do you see that in chapter 3 and verse 6? He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. Unmovable mountains dissolve before him. They may look age-old, but the Lord is eternal. Verse 7, I saw the tents of Cushion in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Great nations quake before this God. And he comes to bring judgment. Verse 8, were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? No, his wrath wasn't against the forces of nature. It was against people who rebelled against him. Like a a mighty warrior, he comes in verse 9. You uncovered your bow, you called for many arrows, you split the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and writhed, torrents of water swept by, the deep roared and lifted its waves on high, that the sun and moon are frozen, awestruck in the presence of this God. Verse 12. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. The Lord's pictured like a a farmer with his threshing fork tossing the corn in the air to to sort the wheat from the the husk around the outside, the chaff. But but it's not corn he's tossing, it's the nations. It's the peoples of the earth thrown up as he sorts who is with him and who is against him. And you can read how the Lord does exactly this. As his people conquer the promised land, you, you can read in Joshua 10 of the time that he held the sun still so that Joshua could win the total victory over God's enemies. And the purpose of this decisive victory comes in verse 13. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of the wicked. You stripped him from head to foot. He comes out to rescue. His anointed one here probably alludes to Moses, the chosen leader of God's people at the time of the Exodus. The leader of the land of wicked, that's Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The one who said, God, what God? I don't know your God, Moses. Get lost. But in the end, well, he was, his army was destroyed as God led his people through the Red Sea. I guess that's what verse 14 and 15 are about. With his own spear, you pierced his head. When his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour The wretched who are in hiding, you trampled the sea with your horses. Great the churning waves, churning the great waves. And again, the the mighty army 
of Egypt was destroyed as God took his people through the Red Sea and brought the waters crashing down upon them so that they drowned to a man. And I guess we've, we've lost probably some of the awesome nature of the true and living God. Time and time again, the Bible describes God as a mighty warrior who defeats his enemies. Now, unless you're Donald Trump, you don't particularly like militaristic language our days, do we? And there's a reason for that. But, but there is something very powerful about the description of the Lord who fights for his people. He's the unstoppable savior. He cannot be prevented from rescuing. See, Habakkuk can cry, in wrath, Lord, remember mercy, because he can look back and see that is what God has done in the past. He was merciful to the Israelites as he rescued them from Egypt. But, but once again, Habakkuk's language points to something bigger, something in the future, to the threshing of the nations, not just the threshing of the Egyptians. And when Jesus comes, John the Baptist says this, in describing the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 3 and verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You see, when Jesus comes, he comes in wrath and mercy. He comes ready to sort. See, Jesus is the true anointed one. He's the Messiah, God's eternal king. And God's own son doesn't just crush Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. No, God's son, when he comes, crushes Satan, the king of evil. He, he does that at the cross. He strips Satan of his power from head to foot. And that glorious victory over evil at the cross is declared in power as Jesus is raised from the dead. So we know that when finally judgment comes upon the world, we will not experience God's wrath because in mercy, the Lord Jesus Christ has borne it in our place. God is our mighty deliverer. He's shown himself more than capable of rescuing his people and punishing his enemies. He's done it in the past. He's done it in Christ. And he will do it in the future. He is unstoppable. Now, when Walt Disney made a, a film of C.S. Lewis's great book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, you've seen it? Kush has seen it. Anyone else? Hands up with Kush. Who else has seen it? Seen the film. There we go. This illustration will have traction. You might remember the final battle. In it, Peter and the armies of the side of Aslan are fighting against the White Witch, and it looks like the battle is going to be lost, that the forces of evil seem to be unstoppable, don't they? They're being pushed back and back and back. And then suddenly, Aslan arrives. And it's a massive anticlimax. It's an anticlimax because there is no final showdown. There is no great struggle. Aslan arrives, and it's over. As soon as he comes, the witch is killed, evil is defeated, the battle finishes. He just turns up. One roar, and it's finished. How do you see the Lord Jesus? Oh, oh, Jesus, undoubtedly, we saw this morning, he is the God of all eternity who draws so close and so wonderfully and beautifully near to us that he can take a human child on his knee and bless them. Oh, yeah, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, he exists. He is the Lamb. 
The one who was crucified in our place, who died to bear God's wrath. But one day, according to the book of Revelation, people will call on the rocks and the mountains to fall on them. And do you know why? Let me read you Revelation 6.16. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. You see, Jesus is also the lion, the lion of Judah, who has promised that when he returns to judge the world, it will be a no contest. There will be no battle. He will just come, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will say, Jesus is Lord. The rebellious world will submit. He is the mighty deliverer. He has never lost anything. So the question for us is, as we face that final day, do we face it confident in the mercy of our God, or do we face it fearful of his wrath because we don't know him? You see, only trust in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ in our place means that we can know that God's righteous anger has been dealt with. And if you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, the reason the gospel matters to you is not that tomorrow might be better if you follow Jesus. Not that even when you die, you will go to heaven. The primary reason the gospel matters to you is that one day you will stand before a God of perfect holiness, of perfect purity and goodness, the God who knows you better than you know yourself, And he will judge you. And like all human beings, you will be condemned. And the only hope you have is if Christ died for you on that day. God's mercy. That's why we want you to come to Christ. But but the extraordinary thing is, that truth about what Jesus has done in the past that secures our certain hope for the day of judgment in the future also transforms our experience of life today. And that's the last thing we see about Habakkuk's prayer. Habakkuk's faith is this, I rejoice in the Lord. You see, you might expect Habakkuk to be so fortified by recalling the sort of might of God, the deliverer, the warrior, that he feels like, I can take on everything now. You know, he's like a Marvel superhero. Bring it on. I I I can hack it. But but look at how Habakkuk feels in verse 16. This is his emotional experience of life. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones. And my legs trembled. Now that's how Habakkuk feels. The Babylonians, they're raining down terror on him and his people, that the horror of that experience has shaken him to the core. You've ever had that experience of being anxious and you can feel your heart beating? Sometimes I face something I'm very afraid of and it's almost like you can feel your heart trying to break out of your chest because you're anxious and then you just start to feel a bit short of breath though you're standing still. Habakkuk actually is pretty accurately describing the symptoms of clinical stress here. That's how Habakkuk is feeling. But he will not let his feelings change what he knows to be true. 
Did you see that in the second half of the verse? Yet. Oh, yeah. I can't feel rougher than I do. Yet, I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. God's promised to take away the Babylonians. So I'm going to wait because he's promised. Wait patiently. And his waiting was rewarded. In 539 BC, the Babylonians were destroyed by the Persians and the Israelites were allowed back into Jerusalem. Waiting on God is worth it, whatever our present experience of life. And you see, it's not just that Habakkuk is feeling like this internally. Look at what's going on in the country around him. Verse 17, though the fig tree does not bud, though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the sheepfold and no cattle in the stalls. The economy is a disaster. Investments have plummeted, pay is down, prices are up, there are food shortages, and there are strikes because of it. And this just isn't a comment on the fact that it's been a poor year for farming. Actually, the failure of crops and the death of livestock are part of the curse God promised to bring on his people when they were disobedient to him, back in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 28. So Habakkuk says, look, Lord, I understand that as your people, we are under your judgment. Yet. Do you see that, verse 18? Yet. That, that's what's happening in, in the world around me. Yet. Look at verse 18. Yet I will be extremely angry that God's not given me the life I hope for. Yet I will abandon the Lord and buy into the surrounding culture because, frankly, it's not working out for me today. No, look at verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God my Savior. I will rejoice in the Lord. That's what you do if you know you're under the judgment of God. You rejoice that God is your Savior. But that's where joy is found. Joy is found in a relationship with the Father who you know has loved you so much, even though you have not just loved him so little, but effectively hated him in your life. He has loved you so much that he gave his one only son. Joy is found in, in the son. The son who you can't even be bothered most days to consider, and yet loves you so much that he obediently went to a cross in your place. Joy is found in the indwelling spirit of God, who convinces that you, that you are loved even though you are so lovable, unlovable. Joy is found in dwelling on the beauty of the love of God, our Savior to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Love that is nailed into history. Love that is bloody and costly. Love that cannot be taken away because it's love that we did not earn. See, that's the shape of the Christian life. We look at what God has done in the past, which gives us confidence about what we know God will do in the future that enables us to live whilst suffering in the present. We look at what he's done in the past. That means we know what he promises in the future is certain. 
so we can cope while we suffer in the present. Because we live in a world under judgment. We feel weak and fearful. If you don't feel weak and fearful about your own strength, then you're just ignoring the world around you. When we face the death of a loved one, when we face our own death, we're not immune to the same problems the world faces just because we follow the Lord. We also experience life, don't we, on this cursed earth. Christians die young. Cancer doesn't ask what you believe before it strikes you. Christians lose their jobs. Christians suffer long-term disability and illness. We're not immune to life in the world. Christians struggle with their own sin day in, day out, hating it, but seeming not to be able to be rid of it. But there is a way to find joy, whatever the circumstances you face. Because Habakkuk says, verse 18, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. His joy is in the Lord, the one who's promised to save him. Not, not just to deal with the mess of Habakkuk's life, not just to deal with the mess of the world around him, but to deal with actually the biggest mess, the mess of his relationship with God himself. And that's the biggest problem we face in our world today, the God we've offended. And the amazing thing is we can rejoice in him because he still loves us. A love that will not change because it's a love that depends on Jesus, not you. A love that you can rejoice in whatever happens because it's a love that promises a future with God in a place where nothing bad will ever happen. That's why Habakkuk attaches his faith to God and his promises. I mean, verse 16 doesn't sound like a great man of faith, does it? He's terrified. He is physically afflicted by his fear. But it's not the strength of Habakkuk's faith that matters in the end. It's the strength of the God in whom his faith is in. And our faith is in the mighty Lord who has loved us and keeps all his promises in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is utterly consistent in his care and ongoing love for us. That's why Paul cries, if God is for us, who can be against us? You know those wonderful verses from Romans chapter 8? Romans 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of God, the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to where Habakkuk found his strength. Verse 19, The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. 
Habakkuk didn't understand everything that was going on in his life. But he did understand that God was in control of everything that was going on in his life. And do you see the effect of looking to God like that? Verse 19, he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. You ever, ever seen one of those films of a great highland stag? You know, you, you look up at the mountain, and there's this huge deer, and somehow it's on a crag. You wonder, how on earth did it get up there? How on earth is it balancing? And then it sort of skips effortlessly across a cliff face that you can't imagine tackling fully roped up. Well, that is what Habakkuk says happens when you trust in the Lord your strength. However difficult the terrain, whatever the world throws at you, however you feel, however pathetic the church looks, the Lord's our strength, and he will take us to glory. So we rejoice in him. Sahar Muhammad Shafi is a 24-year-old Pakistani woman. She had been seeking to convert to Islam. Navid, a Christian man who she knew through work, but he'd taken to church. I shared Islam with Navid and wanted to convert him, but instead I realized that my life was empty without Jesus. Sahar's family weren't aware of her conversion at first. She kept it quiet, but sometimes they would beat her because they found her singing psalms. And once they found her with a Bible, they ripped it up as soon as they discovered it. In January 2004, Sahar and Navid were secretly married, and they had to break all ties with Sahar's Muslim family. And after their birth of their daughter, Angela Rose, in January 2005, Sahar, as any daughter would, contacted her parents. She told them that she'd married a Christian. One Sunday evening, a month later, a large mob attacked the convert's home, and Sahar and Navid fled for their lives with their little girl. Resettling elsewhere in, in Karachi in Pakistan, she called her parents from a, a local payphone and asked them to stop harassing her. After hanging up, Sahar's parents called back to find the call box's owner, because, because that's the way it works in Pakistan. And they told the call box's owner that her, their daughter had converted to Christianity. Late, later that night, while her husband, Naveed, had gone out to check email at an internet cafe, the call box owner forced his way into Sahar's home. He told Sahar he was going to punish her for the, committing the unpardonable sin of apostasy. And then he raped her at gunpoint. Do you know what that young mother said? It's not a joke to change religions. We've fallen in love with Jesus. So how could we betray him? Have you fallen in love with Jesus? Do you rejoice in the Lord, your Savior? Is he your strength? Though my family reject me and send a mob to beat me, though a stranger rapes me to punish me for becoming a Christian, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Let's pray together.
Maybe in the quiet you could ask the Lord to give you a greater grasp, a greater feeling of his love for you in the Lord Jesus. A greater sense of what it is to say, the Lord is my Savior. That you might rejoice in him. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you that you are the God who has not poured your wrath out upon us, but because you are the God whose very character is merciful, the God who is love, you bore your wrath within yourself at the cross in the person of your Son. You took the righteous anger that was ours, that Jesus died to bear our sin, to take our punishment, so that we look into the future confident of our home with you, certain that one day our final resting place will be experiencing the glorious love of our God in a perfect new creation face to face with our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, we know that we live in a world that has rebelled against you and often we live as people who are half-hearted. Please, merciful Lord, would you give us an ever greater joy in the Lord Jesus, our Savior, an ever greater trust in your unfailing love for us in him, an ever greater certainty about your sovereign purposes in our lives, that, that whatever we experience, however weak and frail we feel, with Habakkuk, we might be say, able to say, yet I will rejoice in God my Savior. For Jesus' name's sake, amen.